Section 23. Motoring Triumphs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. During one of his motor tours, the general remarked, It was here, Banbury, that the idea of a motor campaign was conceived. Seven or eight years ago, 1900, I held an afternoon meeting in this place. On that occasion, a crowd of my own people and friends came to the station to give me a send-off. Such was the affection shown, and so manifest was the pleasure derived from my visit, that I said to myself, why should I not impart this satisfaction to those comrades and friends throughout the country who have never had the satisfaction of seeing my face or hearing my voice? And then the idea occurred to my mind that the automobile would not only be the readiest means of transit, but the only plan by which I could reach the small towns and outlying hamlets. Moreover, it would perhaps prove the only method by which we could get through the crowds who would be likely to assemble on such a campaign. By most men in their prime, it would be thought an ample filling up of any week to address three large meetings on the Sunday, and one each weeknight. But the general, at seventy-four, saw that traveling by motor and visiting in the daytime such smaller towns and villages as had never seen him before, or not for many years, he could not only reckon upon three large indoor meetings every day, but speak perhaps to millions of people he had never before addressed. And so, in six motor tours, he passed from end to end and from side to side of Great Britain gathering crowds from day to day for six weeks at a time. We have met with people frivolous enough to write of all that as if the General's motor tours were luxuries. In one glorious sense, they were really so, for to him there could never be a greater luxury than to proclaim the gospel to a crowd. But as a matter of fact, he found it less expensive to travel in this way than to go as he ordinarily did for a long journey to and from London by train to reach each town separately. And the economy of army forces by means of motor tour has been marvelous. Every little corps and village outpost on the route on weekdays being given the opportunity to gather crowds they never ordinarily reach together and to unite their own efforts for once with those of their general in trying to lift up Christ more than ever before. And the general was so alive to the value of inflaming the love of any handful of villagers or children, but especially of his soldiers and officers, to the master, that it was to him a continual delight to move about amongst his soldiery in every land. The general could rarely venture to plan very far ahead, because his public appearances had all to be made to fit in with other and often even more important engagements, of which only his staff knew anything. It is indeed marvelous how few engagements he made ever had to be broken, and how successful almost every campaign of his has been, seeing at how short notice most of them were undertaken. In one of his diaries I found a bitter complaint 
of the waste of time involved in having to wait for three hours between the steamboat and the train. Why, he asks, could they not have arranged a meeting for me? One who has traveled 8,000 miles with him on four motor tours says, Though everybody everywhere, pressmen included, were of necessity impressed with his sincerity and transparency, they could see that he had all the time only one object in view, the glory of God and the salvation of souls. And it is the extent to which he led all ranks into the same spirit which made it easy for arrangements to be made and carry out in so few hours for the very largest demonstrations, as to which it was never possible to hold any approach to a rehearsal, those joining in them living usually so widely apart from each other. An occasional private letter gives, perhaps, the best possible explanation of his own heart in this perpetual motion toward the cross. Who that saw him in some grand demonstration could imagine that he had been feeling just before it as this letter reveals? My feelings alternate, but my faith is steadfast. Morning, noon, and night I tell God he is my only help. He will not fail me. Tonight's meeting will be, as you say, a great strain. But the memories of God's goodness encourage me to go forward in spite of unutterable sadness and gloom. And who that heard him on one of those congresses, in which a great company of his officers and soldiers felt themselves to be feasting on heavenly manna for days together, could imagine his writing the week after. If ever I felt my full agreement with the Lord's definition of service as expressed in the parable, I do today. After all, I am a poor, unprofitable servant, and I have lost no little sleep since Friday night in criticizing regretfully and condemning my share of the wonderful Congress that has certainly taken a large part of the world by storm. Nevertheless, I thank God from the bottom of my heart for the part I have been allowed to have in the matter. Amongst the incidents of all touring, but especially of motoring, are storms such as the one the general thus triumphed over. We are still rushing on. I had five meetings yesterday, Friday, and an hour's ride through the most blinding storm I ever encountered. Two of our cars broke down, gave up, and retreated to the nearest town for the night. Another got through in a damaged condition, and three with difficulty arrived at our destination. However, we who did get in were rewarded with a big audience and a big reception. It was very wonderful. I am now reckoning on the closing meeting which takes place on Wednesday afternoon. Everybody continues to bless me and speak well of me, is it not a little surprising and, viewed from the Master's standpoint, a little dangerous? You must keep on praying that my faith fail not. Abundance of trying things await me. I must wait for my rest until the morning. God bless you. Well may a man sometimes long for rest who has experiences like the following. I nearly killed myself on Saturday and Sunday at Birmingham. For some cause or other, both throat and head got wrong, 
and it was with difficulty I could frame my sentences or pronounce my words. And yet I had to meet the great opportunity that was presented. I am paying the price today in weariness extreme. There is hardly a bone in my body that does not ache, or a nerve that does not seem overstrung. But I shall rally and be myself again. Indeed, I must, for things of vast importance have to be attended to before the day is out. Our exchequer is empty, and I have to prepare for my autumn campaign in Holland, Germany, Italy, etc. A mile or two after Penzance, the chauffeur turned to General Booth, and now she's waking up, he said, with a satisfied sigh, as the great car began to hurry through the open lanes. The general nodded his head meditatively. Yes, he said in his beard, people have to wake up before they begin to move. England wants waking up. I'm trying to wake her up myself just a little, and then we shall move. I asked him what he made of our national apathy. He shook his head. I don't know how it is, he said, but people are somehow afraid to examine themselves, afraid to see facts as facts. There is a spirit in England which is worse than opposition to religion. It's a spirit of, of, of detachment, of separation, a spirit which says, I don't want you, I can do without you, and so long as you leave me alone, I shan't interfere with you. It's a kind of slackness. They want waking up. They want rousing. They want a good shaking. It seems as if they have fallen into a deep slumber. Opium eaters. He is setting out to rouse England once again make one great final effort for the future of humanity. The future of humanity, he believes, can only be secured by conversion. Look at him in his car. There he sits, with a light-colored overcoat buttoned around his neck, a gray forage cap pressed over his ears, his hands in his pockets, his eyes looking straight ahead, and his lips biting at his beard an old, old man in the newest of motor-cars. Through lanes where Wesley rode his horse, poring over a book as he went, General Booth flies in his beflagged car, on the same errand. These two men, so dissimilar in nature, so opposed in temperament, and separated by nearly two hundred years, the one on horseback, the other in a motor-car, sought and are seeking the same elusive end, the betterment of humanity. One feels as one rides along our country roads with General Booth the enormous force of simple Christianity in this work of evolution. One sees why Wesley succeeded, and why the Salvation Army is succeeding. We make too much of sin, says evolution, we don't make half enough of sin, cries the general. Politicians and men of science seem like scene-shifters in the dream of life, and religion stands out clear and distinct as the only actor. People have taken to the Salvation Army because it's so kind to poor people, General Booth tells me. They know I love the poor. 
They know I weep bitterly for all the hunger and nakedness and sorrow in the world. People know I'm sincere. That's it. They know the Salvation Army is sincere, that it's doing kind actions and helping those whom nobody else will help or can help. That's what makes us popular. Sympathy. But the secret of the general is not humaneness. His secret is the reality with which he invests sin. Hear him talk about sin, and you realize the man's spell. At one moment he is full of humor and robust talk, a genial, merry, shrewd-eyed old gentleman. At the next, at the mention of real sin, his brows contract, his eyes flash, and his tongue hisses out such hatred and contempt and detestation as no sybarite could find on the tip of his tongue for anything superlatively coarse or ill-flavored. Sin, he cries to me, sin is a real thing, a damnable thing. I don't care what science calls it, or what some of the pulpits are calling it. I know what it is. Sin is devilish. It is sin and only sin which is stopping progress. It is sin and only sin which prevents the world from being happy. Sin. Go into the slums of the great cities. Pick up little girls of six years of age sold into infamy by their parents. Look at the drunken mother murdering her child, the father strapping his crippled son. Sin. That's what I call sin. Something beastly and filthy and devilish and nasty. Nasty, dreadfully nasty. As you listen and as you realize that the Salvation Army contains numberless men changed in the twinkling of an eye from lives of such sin as this to lives of beneficent activity, you begin to feel that General Booth, right or wrong, has at least hit upon one of the most effective ways for helping evolution. He makes sin as real to the individual as only the mystics can imagine for themselves. Perhaps humanity likes to be told how black it is, how far it is from the perfectness after which nature is blundering and staggering. I know not, but it is manifest that when this grim old man with the ivory face, the black flashing eyes, the tangle of white hair and the tangle of beard, leans over the rostrum and calls sin beastly and devilish and nasty, the people sit as white and spellbound as the patient of the hypnotist. It is a different general booth whom the villagers flock to see as he drives, smiling and genial through Cornish villages, whom the band plays into towns, and whom the mayors and conciliars receive with honor. But the reason of this honor and this popularity is the fact that he is a force, a living, breathing power who has made sin real to the world and has awakened the religious consciousness of thousands of human beings. William Booth was always very wide awake to the discouraging emptiness of mere demonstrations and never expressed himself more contemptuously with regard to them than when he thought that any of his officers, in the midst of some grand display which was attracting unusual attention, 
seemed to be likely to be satisfied with the show of what had been done instead of pressing forward to greater things yet he saw that in the presence of the continual and enthralling exhibitions of the world there was absolute need for such manifestations of united force as might encourage every little handful usually toiling out of sight and convince the world that we were determined fully to overcome all its attractions there had been before his time large demonstrations in favor of teetotalism and in some parts of the country the sunday schools were accustomed annually to make displays of more or less fashionably dressed children and teachers but the general was alone in his own country and time in organizing any such public demonstrations in honor of christ and of total abstinence from sin and from worldly mindedness how perfectly the general could always distinguish between the enjoyment of demonstration and of real fighting was strikingly manifested on one of our great crystal palace days looking down from the balcony upon the vast display when some fifty thousand salvationists were taking part in various celebrations he noticed a comparatively small ring of our converted military and naval men kneeling together on the grass evidently within hearing of one of the bandstands upon which one band after another was playing according to program go and stop that band he said to one of his adcs we must not have those praying men hindered in their fight for souls by the music and this was only one example of his frequent abandonment of any program or practice or arrangement which seemed to him only to have demonstrative effect when any more enduring benefit could be otherwise secured in short demonstration in his eyes was only valued at its military worth and he never wished anyone to become so occupied with appearance as to miss enduring victory the following description by a writer in a big london daily of one of the general's tours might be fairly accepted as a sample of them all and as giving some idea of the way in which they manifested his care for all that concerned men an easy day was the general's description of that in which we fared to medieval godalming through the beautiful hindhead region of petersfield and thence in the evening to antiquity and winchester he meant that he had only to address three great gatherings the day's course admitted of scarcely any of the customary wayside and hamlet musters so his oratory would be merely a matter of five hours or thereabouts there were solid fact in the general's airy designation it was an easier day than most of those on the tour but it had sundry distractions of its own apart from the great welcoming meetings it was curious and pleasant to see gypsies salute the general from their wayside bohemia on the road to hindhead it was delightful to see the general himself as he descended and spoke to the church school children who hailed him by the wayside at roke in one of the most charming wayside spots on the journey they stood with their teachers under the trees in the sunshine little pictures of bloom and happiness now wouldn't you like to be running round the country on a motor 
he asked them straight away, and their answer came with hearty directness, in a naive and tender little speech that had a touch of airiness, he told them of the joy of motoring, turning anon to the many glad and beautiful things within the reach of little people who yet might not go a-motoring, and so in little touches appealing to the joy of life and soul that the child sense could understand. Isn't he like Father Christmas? a little girl was heard to whisper. Here he charmed those in the morning of life. Away at Petersfield in the afternoon, the sight of him consoled some in life's evening. One poor old lady, who had lost the use of both limbs, was carried to her door and set in a bath chair, and there she remained till the general had passed. We noticed the light on her face and how vehemently she waved her handkerchief. An army officer chatted with her before we left the town in the evening. I can now die happy, she said. I have seen the general, and when the call comes, I know that God will send down the hallelujah motor for me, and the loss of my old limbs won't matter in the least. I have mentioned an easy day. Having now described in a broad way the typical early stages, it may be well, in a somewhat more intimate and personal way, to give an idea of the work, moods, and trend of the average day of the whole tour. The stress and excitement it meant in the long stretch of country from the first town to the last were extraordinary. We mustered, as a rule, at nine in the morning for the day's work and travel. Most of the folk in the town where the night had been spent turning out for the send-off. The general was on the scene almost invariably to the minute. Nearly always at those starts he looked grave, resigned, and calm, but unexpectedly careworn. It was as if he had wrestled with all his problems, with a hundred world issues in the watches of the night, and was still in the throes of them and unable, for the moment, to concentrate his attention on the immediate town and crowd that hurrahed around him. But of course he stood up and acknowledged the plaudits, though often as one in a dream. But the picturesqueness of his appearance in the morning sunshine, with his white hair, grave face, and green motor garb, took the imagination of the mass, and without a word from him the people were left happy. He looked a new personality at the first important stopping place, reached usually about an hour before noon. His air and mood when he stepped to the platform for the public meeting had undergone a radiant change, all the more radiant, we notice, if the children who had hailed him from the waysides had been many and strenuous. There was something of the child in his own face as he stepped to the platform's edge and replied to the enthusiasm of the house by clapping his own hands to the people. There was always something naive and delightful in the general's preliminary task of applauding the audience. Here came his first important address of the day, lasting an hour and a half or even longer. It had many notes and displayed the general in many moods. He was apt to be facetious and dryly humorous at first. He had racy stories to tell, 
and none can tell a story for the hundredth time with fresh zest than he in illustration of the old and bitter prejudices against the army a typical one was that of an old woman arrested for the hundredth time for being drunk and disorderly who was given the option of going to prison or being passed over to the salvation army too drunk to realize what she did she decided for the latter she was kindly tended set in a clean cozy bed and watched over by a sister till the morning when she woke the sunlight streamed through the window and the happy unaccustomed surroundings surprised her where am i she exclaimed in bewilderment you are with the salvation army said the sister kindly and softly oh goodness gracious roared the old woman take me away or i'll lose my reputation often in these long and comprehensive addresses the general told how he found the work of his life he was never so impressive as at this stage and the tale in its intensity was ever new his language was nervous intense almost biblical his figure suggestive of a patriarch's in a tragedy sixty years ago sixty years ago sixty years ago each time with a different and grimmer intonation the spirit of the living god met me i was going down the steep incline when the great god stopped me and made me think in the last stage of his address he was the colonizer the statesman the social wizard who would recast character and rearrange humanity he gave an epic sense to the story of emigration and colonization but he was invariably clear and lucid in his detail so that the immediate and practical meaning of it all was never lost on the mayors and corporation and council worthies who heard him then miles and miles away at the second important stopping place in the early afternoon after incidental wayside speeches and idols he went over the same ground in a further address of an hour or more somehow in the afternoon he appeared to speak with added individuality and passion as if the wants and woes of the world had been growing upon him since the morning a needed rest perhaps a little sleep and then away once more by the waysides and through the welcoming hamlets the third and last great stopping stage was reached as a rule about eight o'clock he typified serene old age as he stood up in the white car passing the long lines of cheering humanity here in the evening light it was not easy to regard him as a propagandist he might be a study for father christmas or a philosopher who dealt much in abstractions and knew little of men the general who twenty minutes later proclaimed his spiritual truths and his social ideals to the new audience seemed once more an absolutely different personality often at these evening meetings he spoke for the better part of two hours End of section 23. Recording by Tom Hirsch.